invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 5. We are in a series in Acts, but we're coming to an episode of Acts that by its sheer size and its weighty content, it requires either a really, really long sermon (laughs) or what I've done for you guys, two sermons. (laughs) So this is part one of a series within a series. (laughs) And uh, depending on if I have another child this week, you might get part two a few weeks from now. (laughs) We'll see. Some of this, as we read through it, is going to feel very familiar to you because here's what the plot has looked like since Acts, um, since about Acts chapter 3. We had a review of it last week, so this is going to be much shorter. But we remember Peter and John came to the temple. They saw a lame man. Peter used the opportunity to preach about who really healed the lame man because Peter asked him to stand up and walk, and he did. So who really healed the lame man was Jesus. And Peter did this at a location in the temple called Solomon's Portico. Jesus was executed in large part by the Jewish upper echelon, the highest authorities of the Jewish religion. And they didn't like Jesus, so they don't like his followers or preachers in his name. And so they take Peter and John, they imprison them, They charged them not to preach anymore in Jesus' name before releasing them. Last week we noted that not only Peter and John, but now all of the apostles are back at Solomon's portico doing miracles and likely preaching and teaching yet again, the very same place where Peter and John were arrested for preaching and teaching. So that's kind of the setting for today's story. And a rerun is going to happen, but it's going to be on steroids. (laughs) So I invite you to stand with me if you're able. We're going to read all of these 25 verses just to get the context, but we're only going to study verses 17 through 32 today. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you've given us an example of faithfulness and great suffering. Um, You've given us an example of what your love and what your gospel is able to do to hearts of people who know you truly and who love you. Father, may we, by your spirit and grace, rise to the call of that example in our own lives in small or big matters. I pray that you would please be speaking to us through your spirit, that you would get me out of the way, that you would say what it is that you desire, and that you would take captive our own hearts and our own minds by your great gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So for the entirety of this passage, I really have five points that all start with the letter I. (laughs) Some of these points are referring to the disciples. Other of these points are referring to their persecutors. I think as we study through them, you'll know who the subject is. But we're only going to cover three points that start with I in our message today. And we'll cover the last two either next Sunday or a Sunday down the road. The three points that we're covering today is incarcerated for the gospel, infuriated by their freedom, and finally indicted as Jesus' disciples. But first we find that the apostles are incarcerated for the gospel. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So I remember the fall of 2005. I was 15. Yes, I am that young. Coming to our church was a new pastor. He became my mentor and one of my close friends. Some of you will hopefully meet him in October. I hope he comes to dedicate the next baby that Christy and I have. Hunter is a more of a jack-of-all-trades pastor than I am. I feel like he has a few more talents 
than I than I think I have. He's a great administrator. He takes his churches on missions trips. He's a great youth pastor. He has many youth group games up his sleeves. He knows how to talk to youth better than I do. But among Hunter's talents also is music. He is a great guitar player, a great bass player, even a good drummer. And so when he showed up at Valley View Nazarene, he had been requested by some at Valley View Nazarene to take over and lead the music band. (laughs) Yet others did not like this so much. So up until Hunter's arrival... The responsibilities for leading music had been shared between two ladies, one of them my sister-in-law, Corey, and another who will remain nameless. <laughs> the other, though, felt slighted, and she enjoyed the times when she got to put together the music. Now, here was Hunter, who was going to always be putting together the music for Sundays and leading with his guitar, leading in the singing, and the music he enjoyed for Sundays was a little more what some might call Seven elevens, the same seven words 11 times. Not every song, but very many of them. Sadly, this gal had decided to not only take leave of the music band, but leave of Valley View Nazarene, altogether upon Hunter's arrival. And I think this might, may have been a last straw instance. From what I heard, there were other perhaps theological issues and some disagreements that was going on. Maybe other headbutting going on, but upon Hunter's arrival and he taking the music, and again, it was offered to him. It's not like he came saying, I'm going to do the music when I get here. I know Corey, for instance, she took a sigh of relief, not having to put music together every other Sunday, but this other gal took leave. And I say all that to say, to not equate this gal with certain characters in our passage, 100% one is the other, But we see the similarities, the trajectory of that sort of failure to see things in a positive light or to be gracious because we see here the driving motivation of the high priest and the company's decision to arrest the apostles. We see that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, even though I was nameless to this gal that I'm talking about, I even want to say here that for her, it may have not been jealousy. For many people, it's a desire to feel useful at the church, and here she was being relegated to just still in the band, but not in charge, so less useful, I don't know, water under the bridge. That was just my story for illustration's sake. But for the high priest and company, it's hard to imagine what prompted their jealousy. (laughs) Why? Did they react as they did? Because we back up in Acts chapter 5, verse 15 and 16 to see that ill people are being healed. Possessed people are being relieved of demons. And Jerusalem is being flooded with foot traffic, all coming to hear and see the apostles. And this means temple traffic, attendance, offerings all have to be up. (laughs) For those Within uh, the ministry of the disciples, there was goodwill and shared possessions and community solidarity. These are, these are good things for people's souls and communities' common decency. <laughs> but the success of the apostles' ministry, even though it brings common goodwill to the community, it breeds jealousy in the Sanhedrin's heart. Indeed, success can breed envy and jealousy in any human heart. There seems to be a commandment about that, not coveting. A quick word study 
about this word jealousy reveals that the same word crops up in the last days of Jesus' life. As Pilate realizes that it is envy, the same word, that has driven and motivated the opposition to Jesus. And the same people have that same envy for here for Jesus' disciples. So if you remember last week, there were shades of Jesus, particularly on Peter, how people wanted even Peter's shadow to fall on them. Now all the disciples have shades of Jesus in that they are provoking the same emotional responses in the people who opposed Jesus. And so after being arrested, we hear again, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, this is miraculous, right? An angel showed up. Let us remember the prologue to both the book of Luke and the book of Acts that Luke, the author of these books, is well-studied, well-researched. He conferred with eyewitnesses. And depending on who he talked to when he wrote this, we can assume that he had at least 12 witnesses tell him this story, (laughs) the 12 apostles. But I wonder if Christians are hesitant to believe in this story. Because we all hear horror stories of the persecuted church. Why wasn't a man named Saeed Abedini, an Iranian-American Christian pastor, he was released earlier? Why wasn't he released earlier than the courts figured out? He was imprisoned in 2012. He wasn't released till 2016. How come an angel didn't come and release him? In fact, we must note what the apostles are being released for. Not necessarily for their comfort and security, but they're released for a very specific reason. We read in verse 20, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. There's irony in this sentiment. The apostles are incarcerated for the gospel. It's the gospel that brings opponents to them to arrest them and put them in jail. And it is the gospel that frees them, but it still bounds them to do nothing but preach of it. Do you hear that? Incarcerated for the gospel. The angel tells them to go and stand in the temple for the umpteenth time. Ground zero where they have been arrested time and time again. Surely they know what to expect sooner or later after they go there. And speak to the people all the words of this life. The ESV capitalizes the word life here. And one of my notes, and maybe I shouldn't make this assumption, but I'm assuming building on the scholarship of others, um, speculates that along with Acts 9-2, which uses the word the way, some wonder if the early church was also called the life. (laughs) These two terms, of course, coming from the mouth of Jesus in John 14-6, which he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But we read, go and preach the gospel. This is why you have been released. And it's a very fitting spiritual example for you and me. Because Jesus comes and frees us from our own imprisonment. John would also record Jesus saying in John 8, 34 through 36, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
enslaved, imprisoned, held captive, doing its passions. But then Jesus takes this slave illustration further and he talks about the natural arrangements of slaves and sons in a household. And he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We sang some words this morning, almost as if I knew I'd be talking about this. <laughs> he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Jesus sets us free. But just as the literal happenings in our story here, just as the apostles are freed from the prison, but still incarcerated to share nothing but the gospel, back at the very place where they were arrested, so we too are freed from the prison of sin and shame and led to be constrained in a good way, constrained and led and bound by the hope of salvation, compelled by the love of Christ to share him. Paul says it this way to the Corinthian church in his second epistle to them. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And then he gives out the gospel that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. The gospel should take over the heart of the believer completely. It is good news. It's worthy news to share as loud and as far as we can in both word and deed. The gospel is what drives men out of the jail and back to the very spot where they were first arrested. Incarcerated men, free, who voluntarily incarcerate themselves in the spiritual sense for the sake of the gospel. Well, their freedom infuriates others. That's our next point as we talk about the Jewish upper echelons who incarcerated the apostles in the first place. They are infuriated by their freedom. Catch up with me in the middle of verse 21 and let's read through verse 26. It says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the very beginning of verse 21 told us that it was daybreak. And two things are happening, I believe, simultaneously at daybreak. It's one of those perfectly funny, ironic moments, if you know both things that are happening. Because as the once incarcerated apostles are walking back out into the temple to teach and speak, at the exact same time, the Sanhedrin, what the ESV calls the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, so 70 top dog elders are meeting at their little council grounds to decide the fate of what they think to be 12 imprisoned apostles. <laughs> the very 12 apostles, they're upset out for doing what they're about to be doing again. But there's even greater irony. Because the Sanhedrin is made up of a majority of Sadducees. And Sadducees really just hold to a moral interpretation of the law. 
and they believe very little about spiritual, supernatural phenomena, and they surely do not believe in angels. Luke, in fact, explains this for us later in Acts. He says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. Okay. Nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so there are a few Pharisees also in the, San, the Sanhedrin. But as for the Sadducees, this is the sort of irony that atheists have. They use their breath and their mind and all the faculties given to them by the sheer grace of God to refute that there is no God. <laughs> so the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin hear that the apostles are not to be found in their prison. And the prison, we were told, was still behind Lock Key and all the guards. How did they escape? <laughs> because of an angel that they don't believe in. <laughs> you know, I once heard a Christian apologist state to an atheist, would you claim to know everything in the world? No. If the atheist is humble enough, he would state. Well, for argument's sake, let's say you know half of all there is to know in the world. And the atheist will concede for illustration's sake. So at that point, the Christian would respond, could it be possible that God exists in the half of the world's knowledge that you don't know? God, angels, you see, they don't bow to the whim of the world's knowledge. In fact, these words, greatly perplexed, comes from one Greek word in the original language, and the idea is no way out. As in, in the mind of the Sanhedrin, they've really gone through a mental list to describe what's happening before they their eyes, but they have no explanation. But the explanation exists in the realm beyond their beliefs. <laughs> angels are around, even if people doubt that they are. And the angel is responsible for freeing the apostles. As if by cue... <laughs> As all the naturalistic and stoic Sadducees are stroking their beards and pondering how in the world could Christians who believe in the resurrection, afterlife, and spiritual being, beings miraculously escape their prison, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, this had to be a sigh of relief for all the guards, right? Like, the guards are thinking the Sanhedrin is going to kill us. We lost all these. Oh, well, they're dumb enough to go back to the temple and preach. So, well, we can go arrest them again. Can you imagine how the apostles feel? Not only have we ticked off the Sanhedrin with our preaching, but now we could be seen to evade arrest and escape jail. We fled the jail of the greatest Jewish authorities, the very people who executed Jesus. Indeed, now we find that they are indicted as Jesus' disciples. We read, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as his right hand, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
What's interesting, and probably not in oversight, but in fact by purpose, is that the Sanhedrin makes no mention of the escape, right? Like, thanks for standing before us today. We expected you to find you in the prison, but you were in the temple. Do you mind explaining that one to us? No, maybe the Sanhedrin was comfortable with the idea that maybe they paid the guards off. Maybe the guards are friendly to the apostles. And the Sanhedrin might interrogate the guards later. Maybe the Sanhedrin was probably embarrassed. (laughs) Maybe the Sanhedrin, like many people today, are just uncomfortable with the ideas of exploring the supernatural or the miraculous being true, so they skip over it and minimize it. What they do go about, though, is addressing their previous gag order on the apostles. They said before to not preach in the name of Jesus. But what's even more striking is the downright forgetfulness or the minimization of their own guilt. They said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And then here are the important words I want us to consider. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Interesting that they'd say that. (laughs) Because let's consider the account of Matthew, particularly chapter 27, which says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So quick background. Pilate is the Roman ruler. He's not at all Jewish. Israel's conquered by Rome during this time. And since the Sanhedrin had no authority to execute prisoners, they've twisted Jesus' words to try to get Pilate to execute Jesus. Pilate finds no fault in Jesus, not deserving of a crucifixion or anything. But since the Sanhedrin is so fixated on murdering Jesus, they have instigated a riot. They've called Jesus a rebel, hoping to overthrow Rome. Basically all lies. So Pilate loses his patience. He feels like he's dealing with a bunch of whiny, greedy children fixated on something that they want really bad. And I may be speaking from experience. And so he washes his hands and basically says, whatever floats your boat, (laughs) I'm out. I'm not guilty of this, but then listen to this quote. And all the people answer. So that means both within the crowd, the Sanhedrin and other people, because the Sanhedrin is in the crowd. Look at what they say next. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he, that is Pilate, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So the Sanhedrin weeks earlier accepted the blood guilt of Jesus, accepted the fact, hey, whatever, we want him dead. Sure, put the blood on our hands. It's that important to us. But here we are in Acts 5:28. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, the blood that they've already accepted. At the same time that Peter and the apostles have been preaching, teaching, doing miracles, bringing all around peace and goodwill to the community by healing and exercising demons. They've also been preaching the gospel, which entails the truth of the matter that here the Messiah was in their midst and he was put to death by these very rulers. It can be kind of a bad reputation for the rulers, but I'm getting ahead of myself because Peter's going to get there as he speaks to them. But first we come to a very important verse here. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Hmm. Now, if you have your study guides out there, I pretty much made this study over these verses about this one verse right here. (laughs) But for re-emphasis, if you haven't read my study guide, I encourage you to do so. Let's keep Peter's statement here in context. Because what I fear is that some will take this sort of quote and use it as a license to rebel over trivial matters, or maybe even serious matters, just not valid matters to rebel over. (laughs) Because it's not as if Peter said this flippantly. Nor, it's not that Peter felt entitled generally because he kind of know how God operates. You know, he read the Bible and he felt like he has God's mind down and he felt like God would back him up. No, rather, what just happened? An angel of God showed up and miraculously freed the disciples and said, point blank, go and preach in the temple. So when Peter is making this bold statement to the Sanhedrin, He has an angelic encounter and the very voice of God in his mind from hours ago, clearly to back it up. What I fear is that some of us get this verse into our heads and we wield it like a sword in the wrong situations, especially when it comes to government overreach or things that they do that we don't like. We will slap a slightly Christian rubber stamp on whatever we're doing and say, well, the government says this, but God really wants me to do that. And my question, so did an angel show up? And reveal this to you. Peter, who is using this statement to the Sanhedrin, would later write in his own epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Huh. (laughs) We seem to be uh, talking about that very concept today, not using our freedom for evil, but instead turning around and being servants of God. Honor. Everyone, says Peter, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, let me say this. Peter is living in a time that is a lot worse for Christians than you and me. Peter is saying, be subject. Why? Because it's the right thing to do, because there are good seasons to be subject and other seasons to rebel for the Lord's sake. And we might say, well, Peter doesn't know how bad we have it. But then he continues, to emperors and governors, emperors like the Roman ones who would persecute Christians and feed them to lions, governors like Pilate who flippantly released people like Jesus over to the will of evil, angry, jealous rulers like the Sanhedrin. So my point is, even back in our story, is Peter's bold statement of we must obey God rather than men is not a brazen act of violent rebellion, nor is it evading paying taxes to evil, greedy institutions But rather, we're told to preach the gospel. You said not to do that. Sorry, we were told by an angel of God that we need to preach the gospel anyways. So do you hear the balance I'm trying to get across? Don't use Peter's statement as a sword to do whatever you feel like God would rubber stamp. Peter 
had a divine encounter to back him up in that moment. And what Peter wanted to do was life-giving, not self-serving, not convenient or comfortable for himself even, but life-giving, the gospel. Peter then gives the people he's talking to the gospel the second time, actually. The first time he said it to the very same people back in Acts chapter 4 when it was just he and John in prison. But Peter says to them, the God of our fathers, so he is placing the gospel within the shared history that Peter has with his fellow Jews, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, that very same God, he's done something new. He's done something after these people. In fact, he has raised Jesus. And these words, raised Jesus, is not a mention really of Jesus' resurrection, but as in he's raised Jesus for this ministry, he brought Jesus to this service. And then Peter, for the umpteenth time in the book of Acts, administers complete, total moral blame, unashamedly to whom he's talking to. He says, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, I believe that Peter has used these words very specifically. Because if you remember, I said the majority of the Sanhedrin are Sadducees. And they hold to just the very first five books of the Bible as their holy book. And on top of that, they weren't big on supernatural things. They really just speak one language, the law of Moses, the law. The last book of Moses' law, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Peter is saying, you cursed Jesus. (laughs) And he became a curse for all sinners. Really, that's what Peter's going to say in his own words. But Paul would soon join Peter's company as he too connects this idea from Deuteronomy to the reality of what, why Jesus was hung on a tree on the cross. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Before it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We come back to Peter. He just told the Sanhedrin outright that they cursed Jesus. They killed him. Peter continues, God exalted him at his right hand, the right hand being a symbol of equality. In other words, God exalted, he lifted him up. Now we're talking about the resurrection. And he exalts Jesus at his his right hand. That is, Jesus is equal to God, which means he is God as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Kind of an interesting wording. We usually recognize repentance as an action done by us, right? If I'm in the process of repentance, that means hopefully I'm turning away from my sins. What Luke is likely saying here is that through Jesus, Israel suddenly has the ability to repent. He has given them the power and the grace to do so. What Paul would talk about in Romans 7, that the law was really never helpful. It just showed me how bad I was. I, by myself, was never able to repent. In fact, I am powerless to do so. But we know this, that not only does Jesus death, burial, and resurrection reveal that Jesus is the Messiah or that He is God or that He's my substitutionary atonement. 
but also Jesus gives us the ability to repent. And whenever I'm told by the Holy Spirit, hey, this is a sin, you need to stop doing that, there is enough grace and enough power within Jesus for me to access his power and say, in his spirit and power, I do need to repent of that sin. Do you hear that? God's grace is greater than our sin. Seems like we sang that today also. How coincidental. Verse 32 And we are witnesses to these things, says Peter, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the last point I'm going to make, and I'm really being honest here. I'm not just saying in conclusion to get your attention again. (laughs) But it's because it's very important, and don't miss this. The Holy Spirit is a key figure not only in Luke's writings, but in the Christian's life. And what Peter is talking about Repentance to Israel, we being witnesses, those who obey God receive the Holy Spirit. Peter is talking in a covenantal language that God has covenanted with his people. He has given them the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the things that Peter is talking about, namely the gospel. Isaiah, 700 years prior to this time, talked about Jesus on the cross in Isaiah 52 and in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But in Isaiah 59, Isaiah talked about the Holy Spirit being witness to these things. He says in the last verse of that chapter, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Peter has the words he needs in front of the very people who executed Jesus because the spirit of Jesus is within him speaking these things. And so we end on this cliffhanger this morning and you're like, finally, and Peter and the apostles are in the clutches of the very people who executed Jesus. The apostles are indicted as the disciples of Jesus. Peter in turn has just indicted the Sanhedrin as the Messiah murderers. What's going to happen next? You'll have to come back, I guess, to find out. But for today, I simply have to ask us, are we incarcerated for the gospel? Because you see, if I'm honest, I wonder if many of us live life trying to alleviate suffering. That's why we've become Christians, to be honest, to ignore hell. It's hot down there. It hurts. Jesus offers heaven. It's going to be better than I can imagine. So once I got that ticket in hand, I want to spend the rest of my life with things that are in my control and manipulate things so that I ignore suffering, right? God's in control of the afterlife, but with what I can touch and see, I'm going to try to alleviate suffering. That's not how the apostles operate. Whether they're incarcerated like Paul in prison, they're preaching the gospel. When they get out, like the apostles, they do... What put them in jail in the first place, they preached the gospel. Because fear or the desire to alleviate suffering does not compel them, does not control them. But the gospel does. They're really incarcerated for the gospel because the gospel has their heart. Does the gospel have your heart that much? Does the gospel have my heart that much? Here's what I wonder. I could be wrong. But I wonder if the Holy Spirit that Luke knows, that Peter knows, and that you and I claim we do know, Maybe he didn't tell you to go to the Jerusalem temple today and preach the gospel, but he's told you to do something. He's 
told you to proclaim the gospel, maybe not out of place, maybe towards a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. Maybe it's not proclaiming the gospel in words, but he's told you to free up some of those funds you have going towards, I don't know, satellite TV, a monthly subscription to a magazine that you read actually only once a year, and direct those funds for the gospel. Maybe the Holy Spirit hasn't told you anything about proclaiming the gospel to people directly because first the Holy Spirit has been trying to get you into the Bible. Maybe he's mentioned to you there's a Bible study that happens every Monday at Phil Puckett's except for tomorrow. (laughs) There's a place to start. Or there's a Bible study every Sunday before church at Sunday school. There's a place to start. Or there's a Bible that sits on your shelf on your bedside table next to the TV remote that you pick up more than the Bible that could be read, whatever it is. And I wonder if there's something similar happening, that the Holy Spirit is telling you something But on the other hand, that something can be uncomfortable, such as going to the temple to get thrown in jail again. Uncomfortable to talk to people about Jesus or uncomfortable to make changes in your own personal habits, whatever it is. I pray that we, like the apostles, would truly understand the gospel so it doesn't become a fight, but actually it has our hearts captive to make that an easy thing to respond yes to that the Holy Spirit would ever have, whatever he would have us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I read about and studied about 12 men in a jail and facing the anger of the very people who executed their Lord and Master who had the guts and the boldness to go out and preach anyways. And I read that in a very comfortable place in the bottom of the church basement in the nice cool air, typing away. Sometimes I think we read the Bible and we look for small things, but you always have big, profound truths to offer us. Father, would you use the very boldness of the apostles that you've that you've given them that boldness by the Spirit, would you use that example in our own lives? Some of us don't have to stare down the people who murdered you, but we do have things that we're afraid of saying, things that we're afraid of doing, because lo and behold, the faith you call us to is more than just a mental thing. It's an active and physical thing. It involves us responding to you in very physical ways and confronting people that we don't want to confront because we don't want to rock the boat or changing habits in our lives that we've grown accustomed to. Father, whatever your Holy Spirit is telling us today, I pray that you would give each and every one of us here the grace and the spirit and the ability to say yes to what you would tell us to do. To realize what your gospel is, what we've truly been saved from, so that it would take our hearts captive and propel us to be obedient to you. Because, Father, that's the power that's found in the salvation you give us. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.